There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joses, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joses saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Christy. All right, well, we have, uh, we've made it to the end of our journey through the book of Mark. Um, let me just say, I've really enjoyed this series. Uh, I've enjoyed each week sitting down to, to study it. I've learned a lot, and I've really actually appreciated the sort of encounter with Jesus in the Gospel of Mark that I've had each week. It's been good for my own heart and good for my own life, and I hope that that's true of you as well. Um, this morning, we come to the end. Uh, which is really the beginning in a lot of ways. This is the final earthly act of the ministry of Jesus, uh, rising from the dead. But it's so revolutionary, it's so world-changing, that in a lot of ways this is also just the beginning of his ministry to us in the world. This event, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it stands at the very heart of Christianity. I mean, this is the center There there are really two questions about the resurrection that we've got to ask and answer, and Mark addresses them both for us in this passage. Now, just a little side note, um, you'll probably notice in your Bibles that there's some some text printed after verse 8. That is not, the best scholarship that we have shows us that that is actually not part of the original document that Mark wrote. It was probably a later edition, maybe a few decades later or even up to a century later. So it got included in some manuscripts, and so they print it in the Bible. But it's probably not part of the original document. And so we don't really consider it God's inspired word like we do the rest of the Bible. So we're not going to look at that portion. There's some interesting things going on there. I'm happy to talk about it. I'm happy to talk about manuscripts and ancient history and all that. But we're not going to do that today. Okay? That was just a side note. All right. Good. So we're going through verse 8. And there are really two questions that we need to ask and answer about the resurrection. The first one's this. Did this thing really happen? Okay, this is the history question. This claim, this claim is outrageous. 
And, and is it historically true? I mean, we're a bunch of, of moderately intelligent, thoughtful, modern people, okay? Like, we know how the world works. We know what's going on. Are we really ready to believe the claim human being was executed and certifiably dead on a Friday, and 40 hours later, that same human being in a physical body got up out of his grave and rose from the dead and is still living today. You're thoughtful, modern people. Can you possibly believe that historical claim is true? The Apostle Paul even goes so far as to say that if you can disprove the resurrection, if that tomb wasn't really empty, and Jesus didn't actually get up out of death and live again, then he says in 1 Corinthians 15, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, you're misrepresenting God, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, and we of all people who believe this crazy historical claim are actually the most to be pitied in the whole world, okay? That's what's at stake here with this history question in the resurrection. Did it actually happen? It's crucial for us to answer this. We don't have time to dig into this for very long this morning, but I do want to point out that the Gospels are some of the most historically accurate ancient documents, historically reliable ancient documents that we have in the world. And Mark is very intentionally writing this as a historical account. He's writing it as an eyewitness account of the events. Just one example. Mark, throughout his gospel, uh, he's not a name dropper. So uh, there's lots of characters that, that come and go in the gospels that he doesn't give names to. But here, he goes out of his way and he's repeating names and he's dropping names left and right. There's more names in this section of the, the gospel than almost in the rest of the book. So um, three different times he names the witnesses to Jesus' death burial, and resurrection in 1540, 1547, and 6-1. Why does he do this? He's building a historical case. He's saying, I know this is an outrageous claim, and I know how important this is going to be moving forward. So you might want to follow up on this. Here's some names. Here are their addresses. Here are their cell phone numbers. Please follow up and double-check the credibility of these accounts. And the historical case only gets stronger because all of these that he names as eyewitnesses were women. Did you notice that? Listen to one scholar I read this week on this point. Had the early Christians fabricated the resurrection story, had they made it up, the testimony of women in all four Gospels was no way to go about it. The witness of Mary, the mother of James, and, and Joseph, and Salome, and especially Mary Magdalene, whose name heads the resurrection witnesses in all four Gospels, This scholar writes, it endows the resurrection narrative with the highest degree of probability. Unless women were actually present at the tomb, the early church would never have placed them there since Judaism didn't even accept the testimony of women in court. The testimony of women is, however, entirely in character with the divine economy. Those whose testimony is discounted in human society are the first to be included in heavenly society. Do you see what he's saying here? If you're going to go around making up a crazy historical claim, you certainly don't tie it to people whose, um, whose testimony couldn't even be counted in court in that day. But if it's true, you just tell it like it is. And if the gospel's true, 
Why wouldn't God put those who are discounted in society as the first witnesses to the greatest thing that he's ever done for the world? So the first question, did it happen? This is just one example of many that that there are very, very good historical reasons to believe that it did. And if you haven't kind of settled that question for yourself, um, I'd encourage you to do it. It's one of the most important questions you can ask. I'd be happy to point you in the right direction. There's tons of great resources out there. I've got a bunch of them on my shelf in my office. We can go at it, okay, anytime you want. But what I want us to spend most of our time on this morning is the second resurrection question. Because if you are a Christian this morning, uh, you have answered this first one already. I mean, at some point, to be a follower of Jesus, you, you have become convinced that this thing actually happened, okay? And that historical fact has sort of become a, a settled part of our mental map, of our mental furniture. But the second question is different. There's nothing settled about this second question. The second question is, so what? Okay, like, so what if it did happen? Now, not to be flippant here, but uh, there are many absolutely amazing things that happen in history that are true that don't affect my life at all, okay? So I read this awesome story one time about these three mountaineers in World War II, and they were Italians, and they were serving to, uh, in Ethiopia. They got captured by a group of British soldiers who were serving in Kenya, and they got stuck in a POW camp right at the base of Mount Kenya, which is the second tallest mountain in Africa, and it's absolutely gorgeous, okay, gorgeous. I've climbed it, one of the most stunning mountains in the world, and these three mountaineers, is driving them crazy, right? They're stuck in this prisoner war camp, and they're looking at one of the most beautiful mountains there is on the continent, and so they figured out, gosh, we could escape, but we could not get out of this country because we'd never make it far enough. But you know what we could do? We could escape and climb a mountain. So they planned for months. They got all their gear together. They fashioned all the stuff they needed out of like scrap metal. And they escaped a POW camp in World War II just to climb a mountain. And then two weeks later, they walked right back into camp and said, we're back. Good to be back. I mean, that's an amazing story, okay? It's true. It's verifiable. I love telling it. But honestly... It has pretty much nothing to do with my everyday life, right? And in fact, I go months at a time without thinking about it at all. But the claim of the resurrection is that this is a different kind of historical event. As a Christian, you have to keep answering this second question every day of your life. So what? So what if Jesus really did rise from the dead? We don't figure out how the resurrection applies to our life once and then move on. We really do have to wake up every morning and re-remind ourselves that Jesus is alive, that he's reigning as our king, and that shapes the way we spend our hours and our days and our lives. This is a different kind of historical event. So Mark not only goes out of his way here to give us historical resources to believe the resurrection, but he gives us powerful spiritual resources to receive the resurrection to enjoy it, to trust it, to let it impact more and more and more of our everyday life, every day that we live. And he does this by showing how deeply transformative the resurrection was for those who witnessed it. But to see this, I think we've kind of got to enter into the story, okay? 
We've got to try to imagine what it was like for these first folks who lived through that weekend. Uh, What was their experience like to see Jesus executed on a Roman cross, to sit in the darkness and the confusion and the suffering and the grief of a long Saturday, and, and, and then on a Sunday to emerge with a totally new kind of hope because they've encountered a totally new kind of God. To really understand the spiritual resources for our own life of the resurrection, I want us to enter into that Saturday with the ashamed Peter, with the grieving gals, with the fearful disciples. Okay, I want us to see how the historical fact, the verifiable bodily resurrection of Jesus transformed each of their lives from Saturday to Sunday. So let's start with Peter. What was it like for Peter on Saturday? What do you think? Do you know what the very last word of Peter, the very last mention of the Gospel of Mark before his name pops up in this resurrection account is? To the very end of chapter 14, he had just denied his Savior three times verbally, trying to get out of any association with him at all. Verse 72, before, or immediately the rooster crowed a second time, Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, and he broke down and he wept. That's it. That's where we leave Peter on Friday before we see him again on Sunday. What was his Saturday like? Can you imagine? I mean, put yourself there. He had the worst day of his life on Friday, didn't he? I mean, he blew it so bad, and there was no one that he could blame but himself. He failed horribly. He crumpled when he needed to be strong. He abandoned the best friend that he had ever had. And now he's filled with this guilt because he knows he made a huge mistake. But more than guilt, he's filled with shame because he believes he is a huge mistake, right? That's the difference between guilt and shame, and he was flooded with both. He's deeply embarrassed by his sin. It's public. Everybody's going to know exactly what he did. If you're Peter, your dark Saturday is filled with guilt and shame and grief over your past sin. You believe you will be defined by that failure forever. That will be the final word. The end of chapter 14, verse 72, is the final word about Peter unless there's a resurrection. So the question is, have you ever experienced Peter's Saturday? Okay? Have you ever been there? Have Not this exact sin, maybe, or these exact sins, but have you ever looked back on your behavior and your thoughts and your words and felt guilty and ashamed? I've done and I, I am wrong. There's something wrong with me. They might be public and embarrassing. They might be private or shameful. It might be a one-time, single, awful thing like Peter. Or it might be a whole series of actions, patterns, and habits. Habits that we might still feel enslaved to today. But have you ever felt like your past sin will always define you? Like that will be the last word about you? Well, if you have, please hear this. Because... Jesus rose from the dead, and he's actually alive right now. And because of that, there is now hope 
for forgiveness for any past, present, or future failures. That word about you is not the final word that you hear, just like Peter. When the women go to this grave and they encounter an angel there instead of a dead body, naturally they freak out like all of us would. And then that angel gives them a message from Jesus. And in that message is this beautiful little detail that's easy to skip over, but it's a world of hope for Peter and it's a world of hope for us. Verse 7, the angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. Now, that's a weird thing for Jesus to say because Peter was a disciple. So he's saying, go and tell the disciples and Peter. He names Peter twice. He doesn't have to do that. Why does he do that? Because he wants to single Peter out and name him specifically and extend to him individually, personally, the offer of a renewed relationship of grace and love. I will see you there. Those are words of fellowship. Those are words of inclusion. Those are words of family. And he's singling singling Peter out for that word of grace. Peter's sinful, shameful denial of Jesus is not the last word about him. The resurrection of Jesus reaches back into his past and redefines who Peter will be. And he recommissions Jesus, or Jesus recommissions Peter for a whole new future and a relationship with God himself. And that's the power of, of the resurrection for our past as well, no matter what is hidden there. What about the women who witness it all? Again, uh, these were the key eyewitnesses that, uh, to Jesus' death and burial. Mark names them on purpose, verse 15, chapter 15, verse 40. There were women who were looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph and Salome. And then these women also witnessed his burial in verse 47. Mary Magdalene again, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. If you're one of these women on Saturday, what's your Saturday like? All right, they just witnessed the execution of a dear, dear friend. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? I mean, you're the only one brave enough to actually be there and watch it. Okay, all the men, all the, all the disciples, they are hiding somewhere. But you're watching this happen. You witness the whole thing. I mean, Jesus was probably the only man they had ever met who didn't affirm their second-class status that society had handed them, right? I mean, he was the one who never demeaned them, never sexualized them or reduced them in any way. He always valued them, always affirmed, respected them, gave them time, gave them dignity, and showed them the kind of love that they longed for. This is the man you watched brutally killed on a Friday. And on a Saturday, you're just emotionally tanked, aren't you? You're just done. I mean, you're grieving. Your grief is thick and visceral. It's almost paralyzing. How do you even go on? I mean, Saturday for these women is deep suffering, is deep, deep sadness. The last kindness they can offer is to bury his body with the traditional spices and herbs to honor him in his death. Uh, They couldn't do it on the Sabbath, so they got out early Sunday to anoint the body. And they don't even have a plan. I mean, did you see verse 3? They were saying to each other, who will roll away the stone when we get to the entrance of the tomb? Now, different people read this different ways. Some people think they kind of want it. We're going to plan. 
through a guard or a gardener or someone to get the stone away. I read this as like they're just on autopilot. They're so numb and hurting from what happened. They don't have a plan. They don't have action items. They don't have a to-do list. They're just going to get as close to Jesus as they can, even in his death, to be near him. They are heartbroken. And so, like Peter, we've got to ask ourselves here also, have you experienced the Saturday of these women? I mean, have you been here? Have you felt that the the darkness, the disorienting darkness of life's difficulties and suffering, the numbness of grief? Um, I know you have, right? Because we live in the world we live in. I mean, this is the normal human experience. We um, We will suffer and we will experience difficulties, loss, fear, maybe depression and hopelessness to greater and lesser degrees, of course, but this is what all of us can expect. And if you're not in a season like this now, you have been or you will be again soon. And yet it's in these very moments of suffering and difficulty, again, that the historically verifiable bodily resurrection of Jesus breaks through and gives a whole new perspective and hope and joy. Uh, A pastor friend of mine, named Keith Simon pointed out how many times in the Gospel of Mark the phrase raised up or even got up follows an encounter with Jesus. Okay, so just a few examples here. Mark 2, a paralytic, his buddies dig a hole in the roof, lower him down, drop him at the feet of Jesus, and it says, Jesus says, which is easier for you to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take your bed, and walk? And I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home, and he did, okay? Mark 5, when Jairus came to Jesus too late and his little girl was already dead, Jesus went into her room, taking her by the hand. He said, little girl, arise. Immediately, the girl got up and began walking. I mean, this, this is the depths of human difficulty and suffering that Jesus is stepping into. Mark 9, Jesus meets a boy possessed by a demon who everyone thought was dead. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and it says he arose, Mark 10, Jesus walked into Jericho and blind Bartimaeus was sitting by the road yelling, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. This is interesting, right? I mean, if you're looking for it now, you're going to see that on every page of Mark, Anyone who encounters Jesus in an area, in a moment of difficulty and suffering and pain, after they've encountered him, they rise up. They get up. There's new hope. There's new life. And all of this is possible because of what we see here in the final pages. As Jesus himself was raised up from the depths of human suffering. I mean, the darkness and the finality of the grave itself he now extends the power and the opportunity for new life and new hope and new joy in any situation we find ourselves in as well. I don't know if you guys know um, Johnny Erickson Tata, but she's a a Christian author and speaker. Um, She's also been a paraplegic, a quadriplegic, sorry, for um, 50 years now. She had an accident as a young girl and She's been in a wheelchair ever since, and, and she wrote a book called Heaven, Your Real Home. And in it, she writes about being at a conference, and the speaker asked everybody there to, to kneel down and pray together. 
And she can't. She's stuck in her wheelchair. And she says in that moment, I was just weeping um, because it was so beautiful, and I wanted to be a part of it. And so she writes this in her book. Sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I'm going to be free to jump up, dance, kick, and do aerobic exercise. Sometime before the guests are all called into the banquet table and the wedding feast of the lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees, and I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. She says, I with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light and bright and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. And she says, can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? Jesus is going to have her rise up from her suffering and her difficulty that she's experienced for the majority of her life because the resurrection's true, right? Because Jesus bodily, historically, got up out of that grave. Through all the ups and downs that will certainly come our way in life, Jesus is holding out the promise that he can raise you up to true joy as well, no matter what comes your way. And only his gospel offers such enormous hope. That's the power of the resurrection available for our present difficulties. We've seen the power of the resurrection available for our past shame. What about the future? Glad you asked. This is kind of where it gets the best of all, okay? Uh, The disciples. uh, How about these guys? How about the other 12? Um, Again, not at the cross. They were kind of, they had scattered. They were afraid. You know where the disciples spent Saturday after Jesus was killed? hiding together behind a locked door in a little room somewhere hidden in Jerusalem, okay? They were hunkering down. Now, to be fair, that's not unreasonable. I mean, these are the closest known associates to a man who is just executed as an enemy of the state, okay? So there may be some, some bad, uh, bad feelings towards them, and they understand that. Um, and so they hunker down, they reassess. That didn't go as we planned. Now what? Okay, that's kind of their mental space in Saturday. And again, to get into their minds and their hearts, we can't be sure, of course, but what strikes me about this is their world has shrunk so small, hasn't it? I mean, their plans came crashing down on them. They're stuck in this room, and the horizon for their future must have been so, so small. I mean, it must have been hard to to see outside of the walls of that room. I have four kids. A lot of you guys know this. We just drove down to Denver and back for Thanksgiving. And on the way home, we're not not out of the driveway yet. And that ever-present question comes from the back seat. Hey, are we there yet? Um, This is my four-year-old, Annie. Um, And I said, no, sweetie, it's going to be a while. Just get comfortable. Um, She's like, okay, how long? And I was like, four hours or so, depending on how that snow is on Vail Pass. And the next thing out of her mouth is, how many Georges is that? Now, to understand this comment, you've got to know that the way my young kids measure time is by how long an episode of Curious George lasts. So about 20 minutes, okay? About 20 minutes is their, like, time horizon. That's as far as they can imagine and see into the future. And so I'm sitting here trying to, like, do the math. How many Georges? And this is just going to be demoralizing, right? It's going to be 90 Georges. I don't know, you know, honey, I don't know. Luckily, my wise wife stepped in with some distracting, engaging, fun game and got me off the hook on that one. But that's what I mean 
by a short horizon for the future. It must have been so hard for these disciples to see even 20 minutes down the road for their future. I mean, what could it hold besides missed opportunities, besides obscurity, besides a wasted life? They couldn't imagine a future for themselves until Jesus walked into that room in a resurrected body. He promised he would meet him there in Mark 16, 7. John 20 and other passages tell us about it. He even walked through a wall to get there. Hey, guys, got a plan for you. And Jesus, and and when these same men, whose future horizon was too short to give substantial meaning or vision to their lives, encountered the resurrected Jesus, you know what happened? He transformed their lives. He transformed their future. I mean, the resurrected Jesus opened up the horizon of their future and reoriented their mission and their meaning in life. Every single one of these formerly fearful men locked in a room would go on to die for this belief that Jesus was crucified and bodily, physically, historically raised from the dead. I mean, if people are trying to make up a wild story about the resurrection to keep their movement alive, you don't unanimously and joyfully go to your death and persecution to sustain that lie, okay? But each of these men, they did that, and they only did that because they knew they had an eternal horizon to look forward to because the resurrection is true. These men would bring the news of the historical event of the resurrection to the four corners of the known world, Europe, Africa, even to India. And the resurrected Jesus can infuse our lives with that same kind of mission, zeal, and passion. This is how C.S. Lewis put it in Mere Christianity. A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It doesn't mean that we're to leave the present world as it is. And if you read history, you'll find the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. If you had an eternal horizon for your future, not just years or decades, but but an eternal horizon for your future, if you knew with certainty that everything you did, everything you suffered, everything you endured, everything you risked, everything you gave, everything you tried, would find its fulfillment into eternity in heaven with Christ, what would you try? right? I mean, what would you risk? What would you give if your horizon was eternal and not just a few more years down the road? If you knew your life mattered forever, forever, how would you spend your time differently now? There's an author named, uh, we'll close with this, named Ray Stedman, who once wrote, um, someone has called our present generation Saturday's children. Uh, And it's an apt term. He writes that America is, for the most part, teeming with pools of human misery and difficulty where people live out their days in a kind of ritual dance towards death. And in the midst of an increasingly godless world, despair grips people's hearts everywhere. Hopelessness 
meaninglessness come crushing in from every side. Without the resurrection, we're all Saturday's children, right? We're all stuck in our past sins. We're all looking, we're all under the the crushing burden of whatever current difficulty we're experiencing in life. And we have far too short a horizon for our future to give the kind of clarity and meaning we know our lives deserve. But if the resurrection's true, if this thing actually happened, if Jesus Christ walked out of the grave, this eyewitness, historically verifiable, empty tomb, then there is a Sunday hope that can totally transform every part of our lives. It's a whole new kind of spiritual existence that already exists in the universe and that Jesus is inviting you to participate in um, because he is our hero and he is our friend. That's a Saturday, that's a Sunday hope for our Saturday world, and our world needs it desperately. That is the gospel of Jesus. It's the resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, your plan of salvation. Thank you that Jesus came to live and to die, and that he was raised to eternal life, so that through him, you can transform every part of our lives. The forgiveness of our sins, give us the, the hope in our present suffering, and the clarity and the mission of an eternal horizon with you. We pray, God, that we wouldn't just answer the question, did this happen? But that every day you would help us answer the question anew, so what? So what that you're alive? So what that you reign as king? So what does this mean for my life to live in light of the fact that you are alive today? God, help that sink deep into our bones and shape everything that we do. We ask these things in your name. Amen.